hustlers, road players, tournament champions. Hear the stories, get their advice, learn about their lives. Our host, Joey Ryan, brings you an inside look at the professional pool player. You're listening to the Pool Player Podcast, brought to you by Pool Scene 365. Hey, Joey Ryan, Pool Player Podcast, brought to you by Pool Scene 365. Thanks so much for your support of the podcast. Thank you for subscribing. That is the biggest thing that you can do to help move the needle with this podcast and get more support, get more people watching it, and really help me do some great things with it. Over 60% of the people that watch the videos have not subscribed. So do me a favor, just click that subscribe button right now, click the little notification bell, and you'll be notified each time new content is uploaded, including some, some great interviews like today's interview with a champion, a US Open champion, a world champion. Today we have John Schmidt. Uh, John won over 35 professional events. Uh, the 2003 Reno Open, 2006 U.S. Open, 2009 Derby City One Pocket, 2012 World 14.1. He was a member of two USA Moscone Cup teams, and he is the current world record holder for straight pull consecutive balls run. He shattered Moscone's record with a run of 626 balls. He also mentioned that he's happily married to Felicity, and I thought that was really cool when I asked for his list of accomplishments, and we kind of went over those. I asked him how he got started playing pool. We dive into that. We also uh, took a close look at this record, what motivated him to even go for this record, and some of the details and what helped him really get past uh, that record. So he's had tons of high runs before, but what happened that particular day? What was he feeling? What happened? So it was fun kind of diving into that. And then I also picked his brain for a little advice because I've been a pretty good rotation player. I played pretty good eight ball, but I've really never been able to get a high run in straight pull. And if you're anything like me and you'd like to have a hundred ball run on your record, then I think you'll appreciate some of the advice that John gives. So guys, thanks again for your support of the podcast. And now on to John Schmidt. Hey, John, thanks a lot for joining, man. Hey, Joey, great to be here. Yeah, yeah. Tell us, let's just dive right in. How did you get started playing pool? Got started playing pool back in about 92. My younger brother uh, said one day, hey, let's go down to this place called Boyce's Billiards here in Hesperia, California. Went down there and my only goal was really just to beat my brother or race the 10-8 ball for the table time. Felt like a world championship to me to, to, to play him. Uh, we were both total newbies. And I've told this story a few times, but I'm a golfer. So whenever we hit a good golf shot and you spin the ball back on the green, it's like a good strike. You make good contact, you know, a clean lie. I was walking out of the pool hall. I'd only played pool about three times. And I saw a guy draw a ball backwards. And I said, wow, how'd you do that? He said, you know, you hit it low, you follow through. He let me try a couple and I was hooked. You know, and I just saw the pretty green, green cloth and the balls clicking around and spinning around. And, and I thought it was a fascinating game uh, just right off the bat. Yeah, you and know, I, play, I, I played like in his little D tournament, $5 entry fee. I went to and out every time for like a month, you know, took my lumps, but I had a blast. Yeah, you know, you're not the first person who said that about seeing a draw shot and kind of being instantly hooked like it was magic, right. you know. Well, so, the fastest way to get somebody hooked in the pool, in my opinion, like if you're a a bar or something and they can't play at all and you can just show somebody how to make it draw backwards their face lights right up and they smile and they get a kick out of it and you know to make the cue ball do what you want it to do is pretty wild when you've only played pool like for an hour in your whole life so the draw shot hooked me for sure and uh probably many more people too yeah so when was the moment that you realized you could be pretty good at pool well you know that's all relative, I suppose, you know, because my goal was just to beat certain people in the pool room. But I really was just trying to, to improve. I wasn't really obsessed with beating people. I never could fathom that I could play for a living or anything like that. Uh, I didn't know who Johnny Archer was and Earl Strickland. We didn't really have the social media back then. Um, so I was kind of in my own little world. And I just, you know, just like golf, I would go hit balls on the range and try to hit it straight and what have you and, and keep track of my scores. And I did the same in pool. I was kind of a loner by myself a little bit. 
but then I started playing money games and then, you know, of course you're trying to not lose your money every time. And so that just, uh, that really tuned me up quick. It was a sink or swim, uh, environment for me. I, I, I was living in Lake Tahoe, working at Harvey's as a bus boy slash waiter, um, and a change person at, uh, uh, Caesars. And I met this guy at a bar. He said, let's go down to Carson city, Nevada. And we went in there and here's this Jeanette Lee. And I recognized her from TV and her boyfriend was Bob Hunter. And, you know, they all had like these fancy cues and they had all this lingo I'd never heard of. And I mean, I literally had only been in a pool room maybe twice in my life. I've been in a few bars and stuff. So like, I knew nothing. I would not have known Earl Strickland if he walked up and punched me in the face, which is a real possibility with Earl, right? <laughs> and so, and so, no, I love Earl. I'm just kidding. Still a possibility. <laughs> but, but he, you know, so I was really just like flabbergasted and I watched Jeanette practice and she was nice to me and told me a few things and introduced me to a few people. And uh, before you know it, you know, I'm borrowing like a pool and beard magazine and I'm reading through it, flipping through the pages and, yeah, I mean, it was just looking back. I sometimes I kind of can tell when a newbie talks to me, and I'm realizing like he, he's talking to me the way I was to like Bob Hunter when I first met him. I did I, it was like a world I didn't understand, and and I was wanting to absorb information, and so fascinated by it. And uh, it's it's been quite a journey, you know. Yeah, you, you mentioned Jeanette Lee, and it's so funny because on my day job, I travel all the time and I'm always on airplanes, you know, and when I meet somebody and they say, well, what do you do for fun? And I say, well, I, I play competitive pool. And they're like, really? Do you know the Black Widow? It's like, that's the only person they know because she had so much exposure on TV. I mean, she's yep. really made a name for herself over the years. Oh, and it's yeah. yeah. Most, most famous players ever. She got me out of a speeding ticket. I kid you not. <laughs> A motorcycle cop. I was racing to the first tee in Florida, going kind of through not really a school zone, but it was a school zone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so this cop, this cop goes like this on his street bike and he pulls me over. And I got the short hair, and this was like a military base area. And he goes, What do you do for a living? I said, I'm kind of scared to tell you. I, I play pool for a living. He goes, No way. Do you know that that Chinese girl? And I said, <laughs> I said, Do you mean the black widow, Jeanette Lee? I said, She's not Chinese, she's Korean. And he goes, um, Oh, he goes, my wife loves her. So he doesn't write me a ticket. And we chit chat for a few minutes and I get a, a picture from Jeanette and I give him the picture a week later and he just loved it. So yeah, Jeanette got me out of a speeding ticket. I told her that she thought that was pretty cool. Okay. No she's no famous. Kidding. All right. Yeah. Well, is there a moment that you realize that you arrived at the professional scene? Well, I, <laughs> I think, you know, my problem is Every time I arrived, I would leave because I would win a tournament and then I would disappear and go play golf for a few months. Cause I'm like, now I have enough money to just go play golf every day. And my friends would be like, well, you just won a tournament. Like, aren't you going to the next one? And I'm like, Oh no, I'm pumped up now. I can go do what I want. So I always kind of fought it in my career. Even when I was winning a lot, I, uh, I seemed to find a way to, to just go do my golf and golf really hurt my whole career. But I suppose, yeah. When I won the U.S. Open, it kind of felt like I arrived. First Moscone Cup felt like, okay, I'm a pretty good player now. Um, but if somebody asked me what's my biggest win, it, it probably uh, – there's a couple doozies that were really, really important to win uh, where I needed the money real bad and the confidence. But when I won the Reno Open in 03 against Alex you know, Pegalion in the finals uh, – that was on my honeymoon too. So that was a whirlwind of a week. That felt like, Hey, you know, cause, cause you got to understand I was 30 years old and that was only my third pro event I'd ever played in. Wow. And it, so, you know, I waited till I was 30 to play tour pool, a tournament pool. So um, most guys, by the time they're 30 are established and sponsors and famous and all that. Well, I lived in a motor home from the time I was about 25 to 30 and I was running out as good as, ever for me so by the time I turned pro at 30 I was thought of as a rookie but I was really kind of a seasoned killer I played many many tough you know money matches with famous players and all that stuff so I was you know I kind of wasn't really a rookie I suppose you'd say um but yeah I would say the U.S. Open in 06 was probably um you know validated my career and and, and put me on the map enough where people 
thought I wasn't a, a one hit wonder or something. So you play all games well, uh, but how did you come to really love straight pole and kind of specialize in it? Well, it's funny because living on the West Coast, that's almost impossible to do. But Bob Hunter, 91 world straight pole champ, uh, became one of my closest friends, mentors and great guy. And that's what he liked to play. And so that's what I tried to play with him. And, you know, really, it's funny. It's, it's hard to I say this to people think I'm crazy. I probably played more one pocket because that's where the money's at but I've practiced more straight pull. I play practice straight pull and I gamble at the one pocket and I play the nine ball tournaments when I wasn't golfing. So it's been a mix, you know, it's been a real mix, but the one, the, uh, the straight pull was mostly with Bob. And then I got an obsession with it of hitting certain benchmarks and certain, certain numbers. Uh, Cause Bob used to say, you know, if you can run 200 balls, I mean, you're going to be able to defend yourself playing professional pool. So I kind of got obsessed with that number. Once I was able to run a hundred anywhere from one to six times a day, but the 200 would only be like once every couple of weeks. Then I was able to do 200 like once a week, twice a week. And then it got to where I could do 200 every single day. And, and I knew, you know, cause I've run over 200, like 203 times now. So it got to where if I play straight pool for a day, I will run 200. The table was an easy table, not a, you know, not a brutal tight table. So those numbers uh, was kind of the way that I, I could tell myself I was good enough or I needed to improve more. I, I just could figure out where I'm at on the food chain by, you know, I needed a number. It was like my own Fargo number. Like I joke with people, they ask me, what's my Fargo? And I go, 626. <laughs> they go, really? <laughs> and then they get the joke, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, obviously we're going to talk about the record. Uh, but before we do, I had uh, a thought, like if there were a time machine and you could go back to, you know, a different era when straight pool was the game, right. Yeah. And all the greats were playing the game. How do you think you'd fare amongst those guys? I, I think I could compete. I mean, I, I would like to think that I could, you know, get in there and mix it up with them. Sure. I mean, I've ran over 300 balls like 33 times. And most of those top players, you know, I find out their practice records and I know that's just practice, but you know, they, they run over 300 once or twice in their life or never. And so I, I would think that I could have at least competed with them. Tournament plays different. Um, you know, the safeties and taking the fouls and the opening break and all that stuff. But I, I'd like to think that I know what I'm doing enough to be able to defend myself in any era. But, I, but I, I'm under no delusion that I'm the greatest. I don't think I'm the greatest straight pull player. I'd like to think that I'm one of the greats. Uh, 33 300-ball runs. <laughs> you got to be right up there. Eight, and eight, four, eight 400 ball runs, but that's practice. So a lot of people say, well, that doesn't matter. But it kind of does because I'll tell you something. If you ask any pro player what their high run is, they know. <laughs> mm -hmm. So people do keep track. And uh, like I say, I'm not the greatest straight pool player. I think Torsten is. But for me to even be mentioned in the conversation of those type players, the Mosconis and Torsten, I'm flattered and humbled. And, um, and, and for the fact that I played straight pool kind of part-time on the West Coast in an era where we don't play it as much, I feel like I've got it as I could. So let's talk about that record. Where did the idea come from to break the record and kind of take us through the whole, you know, how you play. I know yeah. you came through Phoenix at one point, you know, and it, like take us through the whole process. No, it, of how I'll tell you, be. it's so similar to like a ton of movies I've seen, but really, and I'll try to condense this down, but I'm sponsored by easy street birds in Monterey. And out of the blue, they had this table in there that I thought was conducive to, to a big run. It had big pockets, slower rails. I liked the lighting. It was very level. So I said to the owner, I go, would you mind if we recloth this table? And I took a real full-blooded stab for like a month at this record. And he didn't even hardly know what this record was. But, you know, he just, sure, John, whatever you want to do. So got the table recovered and, and everything was perfect. And. My wife and I, you know, we're, we're living in the motorhome, of course. So we bring the motorhome up to Monterey and we got a camera and I go in there 
about 5 a.m. by myself, just my wife and I, the first day that I'm going to try this, I'm going to dedicate 30 days. And after about one hour, I looked at her and I said, this is stupid. Like, first of all, I have zero chance to break this record. Nobody cares. Like, I don't know how I got myself into this spot. This doesn't even make sense. So I, I, I kind of played because the room was like freezing cold at 5 a.m., kind of cold and danky just by the ocean. It, it, the whole thing was wrong, and, you know, there's nobody watching, and so I couldn't get really get pumped up, not to mention I didn't have 1% belief that I could run 526. I, was, I just was trying to break my own high run of, like, 400 balls. Well, actually, that reminds me of something. Predator told me when we signed together that they would give me uh, an incentive if I broke my own personal high run on camera. So that was really my goal. I'm like, I'll never break the record, but if I could break my own record, maybe that's, you know, let's give it a shot. Well, about eight days go by. And I think I had a high run of about 270, and I was really getting exhausted because I'm doing all the, you know, it was a drop pocket table. So I'm gathering up the balls at the end of every rack and I'm having to rack myself. And it just, it was wearing me out. And I'm playing for eight hours a day. And I'm running 200 like once or twice a day, but, you know, nothing near the record. And I'm just, my back's killing me. My shoulder blade is burning. My neck's hurting. I told my sponsor, I said, I, I'm probably going to quit after a couple of weeks. I mean, you know, I've been playing professionally 20 years. I've never come close to the record. This is a waste of time. I have zero chance. But then something interesting happened. This guy knocks on the door. And I unlock the door. And it's my buddy, Doug Desmond, who I really didn't know that well and he just says hey uh i heard from a friend that you're down here trying to break this record all by yourself would you mind a racker and i went oh that would be great doug because racking these balls is really brutal physically you know when you when you rack 500 racks a day or whatever so he, he does and he's 72 years old and he racks the balls and at the end of the day he says would you like me to come back tomorrow and i thought well, well that would be great i'm starting at 7 a.m comes back the next day. So about a week goes by and I ask him, where do you live? I mean, you live right over here. Like this is Monterey. So I'm thinking he lives at like right down the street. He goes, I live in Saratoga. I go, well, where's that? He goes, that's about 90 miles from here. Hmm. I was like, what? I, I said, you've been driving back and forth. He goes, Oh, John, I wouldn't miss this for the world. He goes, I used to rock for Moscone as a kid and I've seen him play many exhibitions and, and I will, come wreck for you every day wow and i just was so blown away by it, and it pumped me up to like tr keep trying and and get motivated and we became fast friends and he eventually and then and then here's how it moved on from there and you know the guy tress kane mm. from phoenix comes up to me now so a month went by in monterey i think my high run ended up being 365 and uh you know, and that, and that kind of said, well, that's about what I figured. I figured that'd be my high run for the month. So anyway, Tress comes up to me at the Derby and he says, would you be interested in coming to Phoenix and trying a month again at Bull Shooters? I said, absolutely. And we worked everything out and I called this Doug and I said, oh, you got the sneeze attack. Like yeah, I, sorry. <laughs> I said, I said, Doug, uh, I got a cool idea. Why don't you come down to Phoenix? No cost to you. You know, I love you to death. You, you've been in the trenches with me. I'm down to Phoenix to stay in my RV with me. I'm going to try to break this record. I have zero chance to break it, but I want you there. Rack the balls, yada, yada. He calls me two days later and says, I'll do you one better. I've rented this apartment. I'm paying for all the food. I'm going to drive down there. I'm racking for you. Got the white gloves, the whole nine yards. Wow. Oh, it was unbelievable. So I go down there and I wasn't able to break the record. Uh, I, I, I had a good run at the end. I think I ended up with a high run of 464. Mike and his wife, Julie, that owned the place, both treated me like gold, and it was just an absolute blast. And that's where I started believing that there was a chance I could break this record with Doug's help and all the inspiration and motivation I was getting, uh, you know, in Easy Street and Predator and Lusardo. And people started coming on board and caring and helping me. And messages at night, I'd have a hundred messages of people. Now, I did get one message from a guy who says, John, you got to break this record. He goes, my buddies at the pool make fun of you daily. 
<laughs> and I go, really? I said, what do they say? He says, he says, they say that you're a total moron. You have zero chance to break this record. I go, well, don't they know how good I am? He goes, oh, no, they think you're maybe the best straight bull player in America, but you still have zero chance. <laughs> okay. So that was, and that pissed me off. And I was like, well, I wouldn't say I have zero chance, <laughs> you know? I, so, so that was a funny message. I remember that. So anyway, that's how this thing turned into just Felicity and I by ourselves with me saying, this is stupid. Doug getting on board, Predator getting on board, Town Chalk, Chris Renfro, the pool fans, bull shooters, uh, Lou Sardo. Uh, honey, am I for forgetting anybody? I mean, I mean, it was just unbelievable to where I had so much pressure on me to keep trying. Um, but it, it was a lot of help, a lot of motivation. So yeah. it was it's something I'll never forget. And, and then when I broke the record, I felt like I did it for everybody. You know, yeah, tell, tell us about that day. Was it was there anything it, memorable, you know, about how you felt that day or the conditions that really helped you? Oh, absolutely. That's, that's a great question. And I've answered this a few times. Up until that point, Doug and I had been racking the balls at one end of the table. You know, it's a drop pocket table. You really could rack at either end. But the slate seam was starting to go a little bit. You know, I could feel it. And I was like, damn, you know, and the balls were racking real good. So, well, well, before that, let me back up a little bit. My wife was busy at the apartment because we're staying in an apartment in Monterey for this. And she says, uh, I have a feeling today. Today is a special day. And Doug's wife is really into the whole uh, like vibe and karma in the universe. I'm not so much. Okay. <laughs> so, but they decided to come down and watch. They never came down and watch. It was just Doug and I. So Doug and I decided to rack the balls at the other end. Well, the, the day before I had racked the balls at the other end and ran 378 and scratched on the break. So I knew I was onto something. I said, Doug, they rack better on this end. I'm not having to deal with that slate seam, making balls roll off into the side pocket. Let's stick to the other end. And he didn't like it because the camera was now farther from the table. So, it, he, he, you know, but I'm like, Doug, I, I got to try this other end. So anyway, but I use chemical warfare. That's the funny thing. Oh. Doug <laughs> takes me to this health food store and I buy this little like energy shot of whatever, like a B12 shot, but it was a health food type. And the day before when I ran 378, I drank half of that bottle and I felt amazing. I had a ton of energy. So we joked, Doug and I joked like, okay, we're going to chemical warfare. So the next morning I go in there and the girls are there, my wife and his wife and Doug and I, and I run, I think I run 126 and miss a real easy ball. First shot. And then I run like 26 and I miss an easy shot. And then I run 626 on the next shot and caught it all on camera. Now, as you can imagine, I, I was overcome with emotion and anxiety and fear and elation and all that stuff. But Felicity, she's a very calm, cool, collected person. And she says to me, she goes, you know what the date is today? And I was just totally like, no. She says 527, 19. And I was like, wow, that's kind of crazy. And also that was kind of cute. And, uh, oh man, I mean, when I broke the record, there was about 20 people in the pool room uh, because they opened at like 9 a.m. They start vacuuming and, and all the stuff. And so the crew's in there, the, the owner of the place and a few customers that got text, John is over 400, get down here. Right. Wow. So there was a big crowd when I made the 527th ball, like you could tell they all wanted to celebrate, but I was like, no, no, I'm, I'm still going here. Let's, yeah. let's try to put this record away because I could have miscount with the coin. Oh yeah. We could think I'm on 527. I'm on 512 or something. So I, I remember, I remember that like when I heard Doug say, anger's handled. I didn't understand. I didn't understand what he meant. I wasn't thinking because anger had the high run of like 491. But when I ran 492, he looked at me and says, anger's handled. And I went, oh, wow. Okay. And so now I officially have the high run, you know, on a nine footer. So that was a nice little feather. 
but I need another 30, 40 balls to break this record. When I broke it, I'm telling you the energy in that room and the, uh, have you, you know, when you're Hill Hill and you're just thinking like, do not mess this up. Mm-hmm. It, it was that feeling times a billion. <laughs> and, and people say to me, well, John, you had no pressure. And I go, Hey, you're right. We had like 10,000 in expenses. I have history staring me down cameras on the line sponsors waiting with bated breath fans and friends, haters and lovers, all of it. And, and my own doubt and my own kind of chance to etch myself in the history books. Hey, you're right. There was no pressure. I was shaking like a leaf. I'm telling you, it was brutal. I bet there were probably shots that came up, you know, in straight pull, you get a lot of those, you know, three, four foot shots, of course, you know, maneuvering the ball and, Every once in a while, though, you get a little bit weird on a ball and you got to shoot one up in the top corner. Oh, God. If you, wa- <laughs> if, if you ever watch this run, you cannot believe the shot. I have to make it 519. See, that's, 519. What, I wa- oh, that's what I want. What the was the shot? Point? This was my worst nightmare. The shot that comes up at 519, I break the balls and I have to kind of elevate and shoot a ball up the other way past kind of a ball and a tit. And oh, my God, I was having a heart attack. And I just thought to myself, (laughs) please, God or universe or somebody just once help a broken down old dog like me not faint because I'm (laughs) I've never felt pressure. The only thing I've ever felt in pool that was that kind of pressure was probably the Moscone Cup. But when I tell people that I felt that kind of pressure, they just are like, oh, come on. You were practicing by yourself. I'm like, go break the record. Yeah, that's nuts because like you can't get too different than that, right? 20 people, you know, on kind of an exhibition of trying to break this record compared to several thousand people yelling and screaming, acting crazy. But the pressure being similar was that's pretty cool. And as you can imagine, you're a great player yourself. Can you imagine like the run ending on a scratch on the break? Something's one thing. What if I just drive a little one footer into the point, just twist my wrist and flinch a little bit? Back swing gets a little quick. I decel through the ball. I jump up and I just hit a hanger. I just get to walk around for the next 30 years, like <laughs> stepping into traffic, muttering to myself. I mean, I'm telling you, man, uh, when you try to do something great, you're really putting yourself out there to fail, like epically. You know what I'm saying? And uh, that was kind of my biggest fear that I would have a break ball at 522. And just hit it fatter than my ex-wife or something. And I thought, you know, <laughs> like, just, just don't do it, you know? Oh, so so what happened on ball 627? Um, uh, it was, I'll tell you, I'd give anything to go back in time. Because I was so caught up in the moment that I wasn't thinking. Because my buddy Jerry McWhorter and Doug both said, before I'd ever broke the record, you know what you got to do if you ever get to 527? Just rake the balls. I was like, what? He goes, nobody could ever break your record. A guy could run 840. And they go, yeah, but Don didn't miss. He just quit. So I get this kind of tough combination at 627. But I should make it, I think. I'm going to make it most of the time. And I missed it. And I would give anything to be able to go back and just turn around and look at the camera and go, this is enough. And just rake them. I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. (laughs) That's funny. But I didn't. I didn't. See, I needed a coach there because I – I needed a timeout. I was too pumped up and excited to think straight. Yeah. Well, so. John, I really appreciate you sharing all that with us. And, yeah. you know, it's. Like, oh, I get excited even talking about it. it it's like, yeah. uh, it's so vivid in my mind that day and the emotions that when I watch the run a couple times a year, I've watched the run and I get like choked up with emotion and nerves. My hands start sweating. I mean, I'm telling you, it was something it, it, <laughs> I'm only like 19 years old. Look how bad it aged me. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it stressed me out, buddy. Uh, so what, uh, what equipment were you using in terms of like your cue and your tip? Yeah, I'm just uh, curious about that. Yeah. Predator Revo 12.4 with a techno dud tip. Fantastic tip. Just really grabs that cue ball, but without feeling soft. Um, Alan Pyro chalk, which is fantastic because, you know, I could, the balls don't get dirty and chalky and grabby. The table just plays great and slick. Um, and a Rebco table, five-inch pockets, not five-and-a-half or six like I've been accused of, five exactly, and uh, which are big, but, I mean, not, you know, five-and-a-half. They were five exactly. 
Um, and, I was and wearing... really, really meant to simulate simulate the conditions back. You know when the well, I mean, I tried. I mean, he he did it on an oversized four by eight. Uh, the cues might be a little better now, but the cloth and balls then were good. I mean, it's as close as I could emulate it. Uh, I got so broke down that I eventually was going to choose a four by eight because I said I just can't do this on a nine footer because it is harder. Mm-hmm. There's a big misconception that straight pulls easier on a nine footer, and, and that's usually by guys who have high runs about like my shoe size. Okay. <laughs> They do not know what they're talking about. It's easier on a four by eight. I promise you. Yeah. What do you say to the people out there that kind of question the record or, you know, try to knock the accomplishment? There's been a lot of that. And frankly, I think it's kind of silly. How do you feel about it? They don't, they don't kind of question it. They absolutely say it's a joke and that I'm a joke and that it doesn't count. And like my dad always says, if everybody likes you, you're not great at anything. He goes, he goes, all the hatred and jealousy that you get from this kind of stuff is a good sign. It means you've done something great. So be proud of it. All the guys that say my record doesn't count or it didn't really happen or anybody could do it, maybe they can. That's all I could tell you. Was breaking the record as satisfying as you kind of envisioned it would be? Well, that's a good question. Um. No, no. I mean, there was many things I would do different. And I, you know, obviously it's kind of a bummer the way a lot of people have just bashed it to death. I really thought it would be embraced more. And, you know, so that that's disappointing. But, um, you know, these showings that I'm doing, uh, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the real problem with breaking this record is that it's, it's been sort of a giant distraction. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I've had to make a concerted like decision on, am I going to show it on video? Am I going to do live showings? Like what's going to happen with this thing? And I'm getting, I'm getting beaten up on, you won't release the video and people just do not understand the complications to trying to release the video and make any money with it at all. And I get advice every day from smart people. And uh, it, it's really been kind of a big thing to try to figure out how to show it to people. Cause I want to, how to make a few bucks so I can get even on the 10 grand we spent, you know? So I've got, I've got some, some things to work out, but, um, you know, I could run 900 in practice and I'm still disappointed in myself when I dog it in a tournament straight pull match. Cause I feel like I've underperformed in the world straight pull. I keep getting like third and fourth and fifth. And I just, you know, I run a hundred balls, four matches in a row. And then I just faint when it counts a couple times. And so that's something I'm always kind of bummed about. And, and uh, I'm man enough to admit I'm dogging and it's not unlucky or I'm um, getting bad rolls. I'm, I'm choking my brains out out there. So that's something that, you know, I, I feel like I've won the world straight pull or Charlie straight pull once, but I had a good chance to win it two or three times and, and, and just messed it up by dogging it. So that's something I'll always regret. Yeah. So, yeah. John, I'm, I'm not really good at straight pool. You know, I, I'm pretty good at a few other games Yeah, and I've tried, you know, I've, yeah. you know, I've tried to get a high run and I've never gotten to a hundred balls, but you know, well, I, you I absolutely like, are a hundred ball runner. You just, you I, just, I feel like I don't have the knowledge or, you know, the training, what advice could you give to someone like myself who can pocket, you know, could possibly do it, but. Oh yeah. You. That? I could guarantee have you run a hundred balls in about five days, but this is what we would do. First off, uh, it's gotta be the right table. I mean, it, you know, you're, you can't play on some old cloth, dirty balls, four and a quarter inch pockets. I mean, yeah, I can run a hundred balls on a table like that, but maybe once a day you give me an easy table. I've run 115 times in one day on an easy table. So it's all to do with the table just like a golfer is going to shoot lower scores on a softer golf course. So you want to go find you a five inch pocket table, brand new cloth, uh, great lighting level table, polish the balls real good, make them real slick. And if you do all that, then it's on you. You're still going to have to, you know, pick the balls off correctly. Now, if I coached you, I would bet my life. Well, I would bet Danny Harriman's life that you would run. Oh, come on. That's kind of funny. Even Danny's got 11. <laughs> I would bet big money that you would run a hundred within five days. If you shot the shots, I told you to shoot. Now, 
if you do it the way you want to do it, because you're kind of new at it, I would suspect you could do it in 10 days for sure. Because yeah. you're a great player, you know, but Thank you got to have the right table and you have to, here's the only advice you need to play good straight full. And this sounds corny, but it's not because this works. You have to figure out a way to either have the cue ball not move much or have the object balls go into the pockets softly, one or the other. And you can run 50 or like 100 balls not doing those things, but you are not running 350 if the object balls are going too fast or your cue balls always getting away from you. You either need heavy hits with the cue ball where you're hitting like good solid hits and the cue ball stopping and the object ball can go in fast or you've got to let those object balls dribble in at two miles an hour. If you start doing that um, and stick into those rules and not running into the balls unless absolutely necessary without insurance, they'll run balls. Yeah. It's, it's funny that you said that I just did a, I don't know if you caught it one pocket power rankings and uh, Mike Davis was on there and I know, you know, Mike pretty well. Sure. Great and guy. It, yeah. It was Great funny. Yeah, it was funny how we were talking about, he was talking about the Filipinos come over with such a high skill set. And so even game, he's like, you just have to teach them the rules and they figure oh, yeah. it out and they have such skill that he said when like Arcolo first started playing straight pool, oh, he yeah. was like, he had no clue what a key ball was. You know, he's going like three rail shield run 97 yeah, balls. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so oh, John, yeah. you know, I, I don't think you remember this. We played one time years ago it must have been eight nine years ago now back okay. in virginia and it was a race to nine we were in the planet pool and i don't know what it was but i was just super hot and i got out on you eight to zero in a race i remember that you played amazing too eight to zero that. and and so i'm in my mind i'm like i just beat john i, I was schmidt. plotting your death the whole time trust me <laughs> well I, I i'm thinking i just beat john schmidt oh my gosh i can't wait to call my you know wife or whatever yeah so so you get up and you start putting balls together, racks together, packages. I think I looked at, you know, two kick shots from there okay. and, and you beat me nine to eight. Wow. So I want to know, you know, there's probably more memorable comebacks that you have in your career. Like when you're sitting in that chair and you're getting beat that by a significant margin, like, what are you thinking? What's, what's your mindset? What's going on? Well, I, I mean, I remember that match. I remember just being very impressed with how you're playing. And I just was like, wow, man, this guy's playing great. Well, I'm going to get beat. I start always, you know, I, my mind just starts thinking, okay, going to the loser side, I'll get to play more matches. And, you know, and, and I'm trying to watch where you're breaking from. And uh, I'll tell you another thing I, I do that helps me and hurts me is like when I used to golf and I'd watch a great player and had a great swing, you know, you try to kind of copy their move. Sometimes that can mess you up. Well, I do that with pool. When I see somebody playing real good, somebody might have a shorter, quicker stroke. I go, yeah, that's the way to do it. That's precise. That's tight. And then I'll see a long flowing stroke like a Tony Chohan or a Scott Frost. And I go, ooh, that looks really good when it's working. So I'm always kind of trying like, Tweaking. you know, so like when you were beating me to death, I was probably knowing me, I was just watching your stroke, your tempo, your backswing, how far you're following through, your grip pressure. And, and, I probably got up and tried some of the stuff you were doing and it might've got me in stroke and but, but, get the hell out of here. No, <laughs> no but there has to be a very, lot of luck. I don't, there's a lot of luck. You. Okay. That's very no. flattering, but I don't believe you. <laughs> no, there's a, no, I do. I try to copy and, and, and watch, but I guarantee if I beat you nine games in a row, I got very lucky. doesn't matter how good I'm playing. You can only pull something like that off. If you got pretty unlucky, from being up eight zero and I had to get very lucky. So, you know, some guys will talk about, Oh, I showed heart and all this. I, I got lucky to beat you from there and it wouldn't, it wouldn't happen very often. Yeah. Well, the, the, the fun part of that story for me, cause obviously that wasn't fun. I thought I had you beat. I still came back. I think in that tournament, I beat Brandon Schuff and Matt Clatterbuck and some other good players. Yeah. Great players. Um, yeah. But we roomed together that night. You were like, Hey, yeah. you, you know, you, you staying out here. And I'm like, yeah, you want to room together? I was like, sure. And so uh, here it is, 1130, 12 o'clock at night. You and I are going around looking for a hotel. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I'm like, OK, let's just find a closest hotel. And you're like, no, wait a minute. The Masters is on in the morning. I got to catch the early coverage. I got to make sure they have the golf channel. And I'm like, is this guy serious? It's like oh, midnight. Yeah. You know, we got I would have stayed morning. in an alley if me and a bum could have sat there and watched Golf Central. I had to see it. 
Yeah. So meanwhile, five hotels later, it's now one o'clock in the morning and you finally find somebody that's got the golf channel so we can stay in the hotel. Yeah. So yeah, that was just funny. I'm not usually a prima donna, but for me, that was a prima donna move. I had to see the masters and that shows what a class guy you are because most players, if I come back and beat them from eight zero, there is no chance they're going to room with me. Yeah. So that shows that you're, you're a pretty, pretty decent human being. I was a little starstruck to be honest. With you. <laughs> I had a lot of respect for your games. Well, thank you. Yeah. What was your most crushing defeat in your poker? Well, uh, I wouldn't say I, I've had a ton of defeats and, and many of them have been crushing, but I've made what's been more crushing with some of the moves I made in pool. I've done some things in pool and I've made some decisions like, I was playing the best pool of my life in 06 with a cue that I'd played with for like 15 years. And I made the switch to low deflection shafts. And for two years, I literally could never win a set. I mean, I was going to and out in every tournament. It was the dumbest thing I've ever done looking back. And I mean, it was just the dumbest thing. I was playing the best pool of my life and I just won the U S open I played CJ Wiley, a 10 ahead set for 10,000 in Dallas, beat him in an hour. I just run like, you know, 500 people watching on live stream, the whole nine yards. I'm playing the best pool of my life. I switched to a low deflection shaft and I was losing 11-0, 11-1 and 11-2 to people that had never beat me. And this went on for about a year and a half. It was brutal. And looking back, I, I just wish I wouldn't have changed cues and especially going from you see the company that I changed to is a great company and they make a great LD chef. But for me to go from a standard tree branch that I was used to, to an LD chef was the dumbest move ever. And looking back, that's my most crushing defeat because now all eyes were on me. I'd go to a tournament. I'm the defending us open champion. And then I'd lose 11 zero and I'd miss a hundred balls and people come up and be like, are you okay? Like, you, have you got COVID? And this was 10 years ago, you know? So like, so it was just one of the dumbest moves. And I've made a lot of dumb moves, but this was at the top of the list. Um, they were thinking, is this another John Schmidt? Is this? No, I, I mean, I, I did. I had people tell me like, Hey, you know, I've been your friend a long time. I've never seen you play like this. I like, are you doing drugs or something? And I mean, they were sincerely like trying to help me. Like what, what's going on? I mean, I'm losing 11 to zero. I'm shooting three times a rack and losing 11-0. I mean, it was awful. And this was like for two years now. I'm not kidding you. From 07 and 08, which is right when YouTube started, so all the matches are online, I can't beat nobody. Once in a while, I play good and get the four. Wow. And but So, yeah, that's one of the things I, I regret. Um, and it really, really kind of pushed me away from pool. I, you know, I, I changed cues. I found my game again in 09 and 10, and I won the Players' Championship in the Derby City one pocket, and I ran 294 and a diamond. I knew I was back. Okay, now I can play again. I went and bought a pool room and kind of just faded out of pool. But now I'm, I'm kind of fully immersed back in pool again, so it's come full circle, you know. Uh, the crushing defeats, oh, God, I've had so many, um, you know, that at the time seemed like the end of the world. I mean, I've – I've lost six or $8,000 of my own money and had to go sleep in my car freezing to death, you know? And I mean, the day before I had eight grand and now I have like $12. I mean, I've been through that kind of stuff. So when I say I've paid my dues and I've taken my lumps and, you know, I, I have. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, some of those stories, you know, when I talk to people who don't follow pool or really, right. you know, they, they have no idea. You know, I, I, I'm pretty good, good friends with uh, Brandon Schuff. And I remember, you know, after he had gone on the road and really elevated his game and became like a professional player. Yeah. He's you know, a great player too. Yeah. I yeah. was at first break with his room where he's like a, you know, he was a house pro at the time. Yeah. And it was one of those tournaments in there. And afterwards I leave at like one o'clock in the morning and I go get in my car and he's in the car next to me asleep with all his clothes yeah. in there and everything. Trying to just save money. Yeah. And yeah. 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 And I'm like, yeah. you know, people need to hear these stories, you know, so I'm yeah. hoping that through this podcast and maybe, you know, maybe it'll inspire people to do some documentaries or some stories so that people understand, yeah. you know, that it's just not a bunch of complaining pool players saying there's no money in the industry. Oh. It's actually a serious problem. People yeah. go through some serious stuff, you know, to, to live this dream. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's, you know, it's thankfully guys like you shedding light on, on things, but 
there's some light at the end of the tunnel. It's, the way I look at it is somebody could come in and own pool, all of it for like a million or $2 million. And there's a lot of people that follow pool and play pool and watch pool. So there's an excellent opportunity for some entity. I mean, to go try to buy hockey or anything, it'd be billion dollars pool. You can buy for like a million or two. And, you know, so it's, so it has a shot. And, and I will say this, I want to say this about all the pros all at once, even the guys that I'm not, that I don't get on well with. In the overall scheme of things, all the pro pool players, I've known them all 20 years, are good people. Mm-hmm. They're good human beings. They're not out hurting people or robbing or stealing or harming people. So when I look at other sports and I see some of these stars, they get millions a year and they're for all intents and purposes, just complete criminals, waste of oxygen. And then I see guys like a Brandon Schuff or myself sleeping in our car. I mean, I mean, think about what's the worst thing Earl Strickland's ever done. Cry about a ball skidding. I mean, that guy's actually got a good heart. So all the pros, all the European players, all the Asian players, all the American players, in my opinion, are good human beings and they deserve a chance. And uh, I'm lucky to call them my friends and peers because they're a good group of guys as a whole. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't know. I agree with that 100%. And again, that's another reason I'm doing this because, you know, even when people see you guys at your worst, right? Yeah. You you battle. Yeah. yeah, You dog a ball, hill, hill, and you walk away. You know, I remember uh, people have asked me to have Mike Siegel on and a story about Mike Siegel. I, you know, I watched him on TV, you know, my dad loved Mike Siegel. So, you know, I was so excited to meet Mike Siegel. I'm at the super billiards expo and he's selling cues. So yeah. I go up to, to talk to him. I'm like, hey, Mr. Siegel, I really, I'm a big fan. I really love watching you play pool. He says, yeah, anyway, kid, you're going to buy a cue, you know, and, and he walks wow. away. And, yeah. and, you know, that stuck with me for a long time. Sure. Still to this day, you know, to yeah. where I'm Well, like, I, I, yeah, I've been guilty of saying things in the heat of the moment to people that are kind of heckling me or bullying me when I'm having a rough, because, you know, the interesting thing about being a pool player for a living is that you're held to the standard of, of kind of a celebrity, like, you know, a Mike Siegel in his sport. So you're held to the celebrity standard, but you're paid like minimum wage. Yeah. And it, and it, and it is the most taxing thing mentally and aggravating thing you can imagine. People say, well, you don't see Michael Jordan on Facebook having Facebook wars with haters. Well, I understand he makes a hundred million dollars a year. Yeah. You know, so, so, you know, I got to cut all the pro players slack because the money is so brutal. Um, yeah, but but like oh, I, I say, know. they're all good guys. Yeah, yeah and like my point about that Siegel inter- interchange is, you know, when I talked to him at that point, I, you know, I'm thinking he's just there selling cues, but he could have just yeah. lost in the pro event, you know, and with under so much pressure and everything. Right. You know, but you don't see that. And sometimes people see the worst of you guys. And that's one of the reasons I'm doing this is to bring out the best of you guys, because I know I agree with what you say wholeheartedly Yeah. that 99.9% of the pool players out there are good, you know, and yeah, they're, they're good and, people. Well, yeah, they, they got good, good yeah. inside, you know, even they're if not they're in trouble. Problem. Yeah, right. They're not in trouble with the law. I mean, Earl Strickland, for example, if Earl Strickland sees like a homeless cat, he guarantee is going to stop what he's doing. He goes across the street, gets a can of tuna, puts a little bowl of water there. And he gets crucified like he's the Antichrist. Earl will give you the shirt off his back. Earl, one time I was in New York, and he heard that I needed a, a place to stay. You know, New York, hard to find a room, 300 a night. He let me come over and stay in his apartment. And I could tell you some real funny stories about that on another time. But, I mean, that was a nice thing for Earl to do, you know. Yeah. And then he ran 135 and out on me in the tournament. I gave him a big hug. I think he's, I think he's kind of a great guy in a lot of ways. He's a... Uh, He's the perfect example of of somebody that gets crucified that really in the overall scheme of things, I mean, yes, he he could be, I mean, you know, he could act better, but (laughs) I know people that get on TV and act like evangelists. And meanwhile, they're out there doing some pretty shady stuff and the world adores them and they live in mansions. So, you know, I just kind of feel for the players as a group that, uh, It'd be nice to see the corporate world give us a fair shake. And, uh, you know, I think pool is 
a vehicle that could really make a lot of money for for somebody with some real business savvy. You yeah. know, I mean, I I see YouTube matches with four million views. That's a lot of eyeballs watching pool. So people do watch this game, and I think uh, somebody's going to come in one of these days and take pool by storm, and it might only cost a couple million dollars. Yeah, we got to package it a little different. But yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I think you know, John. I do something on these episodes sometimes and you know it kind of depends on the person and if i know them and kind of know their personality sure but it's, it's a fun little game i call it speed pool okay and what i do is i i give you a player and you have about five seconds to say the first word that pops to your mind okay and, and uh, oh boy yeah and so i did this uh with a bunch of people and they'll, they'll say the person and then i normally follow up with one person but i just did it with rodney morris not too long ago you have big shoes to fill because he had <laughs> He, he nailed him with these one one word things, and then he gave me a whole description about the one word. So I don't know. Well, I gotta I gotta warn I gotta warn you though. One thing I, I really don't want to do is I don't I don't want to um, really get a laugh at anybody's expense or make anybody a, you know butt of a joke or anything. I, I just totally try not agree to do that. But but um, I'll do my best. Yeah. No, I think I I didn't throw. Yeah. I yeah, think I'm not gonna throw anybody under the bus. But when I'll, you see the name, neither. For the, why we're talking about Rodney, probably my favorite player ever. The guy has treated me like a brother for 20 years. I've taken him dirt biking, golfing. Like, he's awesome. If you don't yeah. like Rodney Morris, there's something wrong with it. Look, I got to tell you. So when I asked Rodney, one of his players was Johnny Archer. And he said, Lint. And he said, boy, he went on this lit thing for years. And, you know, and my buddy yeah. Raj Hundall was playing next to him. He said he's picking up lint off tables he's not even playing on. You know, I know. just having fun. Well, with yeah. it. So but, you know, the perfect example there is if that's the worst thing that Johnny Archer does, some lint, yeah. you know, it's not bad. Yeah, it's meant no. to be fun. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll give it a shot. Here we go. Shane Van Boning. Killer. Corey Duell. Introverted. Oscar Dominguez. Smart. Earl Strickland. Good-hearted. Rodney Morris. Ladies' man. <laughs> That's two words, John. <laughs> okay. Um, sexy. Playa. <laughs> yeah, playa. Uh, tell me about, uh, I had Oscar on. Really enjoyed talking to him. And I agree with you. Like, he seemed very intelligent. Yeah, he's a great uh, guy. Yeah. 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 Tell me about that. Do you, like, do you, well, I'm talking about on the table or just, well, I just all just, he, um, you know, I've known Oscar 25 years because we're both West Coast guys. His dad's a class act. Oscar's a class act. He's a very intelligent person on and off a pool table. And I like that. I, I, I don't have much patience for just people that just, you know, like every word out of their mouth is the dead opposite of logical. And Oscar is a very smart, logical, uh, polite, respectful, talented human being. And I just thank the world of the guy. Yeah. yeah. Who, who was the biggest character that you ran into out on the road? Mm, boy, bunch of them. I mean, I could think of a ton. Uh, Eric Durbin, I could tell you some Eric Durbin stories that would, that were pretty entertaining. Um, Earl Strickland's a big character. Uh, Angry White Man, a friend of mine, is hilarious. He's a character. Uh, <laughs> Angry White Man. <laughs> oh, yeah. Angry White Man. That's what we call him. Um, character. I mean, they don't have to be a great player, just a character, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, and maybe share a story from one of them that one of the Junior best Moore. Well, okay. Junior Moore, God rest his soul, he's gone. He was a guy in Mobile, Alabama. And he walked up to me the first time we ever matched up. He was about 75 years old. And he puts his finger in my face. He goes, I don't know who you are and I don't give an F, but I'll take 10 six in the break. So I said, okay. So the next day he walks in and he walks in and he, he's screwing his stick together like this as he's walking. And he goes, you ready to play you little asshole? <laughs> and he gets up there. And this, I had never seen anybody climb up on the table. He's wearing pink slippers. I kid you not. Everybody knows him. He's wearing pink slippers, house slippers. And we're betting like race to three for 2,000 with 10-6 in the break. And he's climbing up on the table. Like, you know, where you climb up on the table. Yeah. 
and this was in Mobile, Alabama. And I just thought, like, where am I? This is crazy. <laughs> and, and I got a million. I got a million. We got in a fist fight one time, me and him. He attacked really? me. Oh, throwing pool balls at me. But I love the guy. He, he All in all, Junior Moore is hilarious. And uh, even though he tried to kill me, uh, I got fond memories of him. He walked up to me the next day and he goes, after he, after he beat me up, and he said, let me ask you a question, John. And I'm thinking he's going to pull out a gun and shoot me or something. <laughs> he goes, did I hit you first? And I went, well, yeah. And he goes, well, I'm an asshole. You want a coffee? And he buys me a coffee <laughs> and we just play another race of three for 2000. Oh, so, awesome. oh yeah. Junior Moore, you talk about a character. This is the kind of sense of humor he'd have. He'd be watching a football game and all the pros would be standing there in a huddle. And he'd look at me and he goes, you think they're talking about you, don't you? <laughs> I mean, he was funny and he had a wit. Oh, it was so funny. That's funny. So yeah, I've met some characters over the years, believe me. Yeah. If there yeah. was uh if there was no internet now and you could still kind of pop around into different cities and play people, uh, and you could pick three players to take with you on the road to get the cash, who would it be? Well, all of the great players get the cash because they, they just play so good they overpower their opponents. But there's certain guys that I really enjoyed traveling with. They were just fun to be around. Like a Shannon Dalton. Um, Bobby Hunter was great because he's just, you know, a great, a great guy. Um, Johnny Archer and Rodney are fun to travel with because, I mean, Johnny Archer sees the humor and everything like I do. And uh, he doesn't get too serious about too much. And Rodney, of course, Rodney's like having – a comedian slash bodyguard with you. So I love traveling with Rodney. <laughs> so, you know, just, uh, heck I had fun running around with you. You know, I, I, I made a lot of friends in pool. And one of the interesting things that pool has afforded me is making a lot of friends and seeing a lot of places. But what's really interesting about it is there's a ton of free time. Okay. So in my free time, I've had a chance to dive into other things in my life. Uh, that's helped me in a lot of ways, maybe financially or just with my career or whatever. If you get a chance to, to have a lot of free time when you're a player and you know what you do with that time's up to you. But I've had a chance to learn a lot of things on YouTube over the last 10, 12 years. But if I was, you know, 40 hours a week, I might not have. But uh, so, you know, pools afforded me a lot of interesting kind of angles in life and, and uh, the cryptocurrencies. I've learned a lot about them. And I've done really well with them. And it's because I've had the free time from being a pool player to be able to dive into that aspect. And now, uh, you know, the cryptos might might really change my life. So I don't know. Funny how things work out. Yeah. So if we turn back the clock a little bit, uh, would you do it all over again? Or would you take a more traditional? No, no. If I knew if I knew I was going to have to go through the million miles of travel, and the, the social media lambasting, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if I would. I, I, it's been a blur and it's been a blast and I wouldn't trade all the friendships for the world and all the, you know, I always say this to people. They say, you know, they talk about what you earn and pull in this. I said, let me tell you something. I said, you ask most people, what's the most exciting day they've ever had in their life? And they have to think, you know, they have to go, well, I got like a thousand of those days. If you locked me in a room, I can literally just sit there and think about the last 20 years. And it's exciting. You know, the winning big tournaments on television or a U.S. Open or a money match in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, where a guy pulls out a 357 and I'm flying through windows or whatever the hell I can remember. It's exciting stuff. And um, it's almost like living a, uh, you know, like living a TV show or something. You just can't hardly make up some of this stuff. So I, I suppose it, it'd be kind of unfair to pull to say I wouldn't do it all over again, but I definitely wouldn't have changed it at LD Chef. <laughs> I would not have. Uh, well, speaking of LD Chefs, you mentioned your sponsors before, but I want to give you a chance to really talk about your sponsors and what they mean to you. Well, without them, you know, pool would just be impossible. I have Predator Cues uh, as my equipment sponsor, and I love their equipment. Uh, you know, and here's my sales pitch on that real quick. People always say, well, John, you're saying that, but that's because they're paying you. 
none of us get paid enough to lie. If these cues didn't play incredible, I wouldn't use them. I mean, imagine I'm playing a $10,000 money match. You know, you know what the companies pay, so they're not going to pay us enough to lie. So when I say the Predator cues play great, I mean it. Now, if they paid us a million a year, yeah, you might get some fib tearing there out of people. But Predator's amazing. I couldn't do what I do without them. And, I, and I'm just extremely grateful and appreciative that they haven't forgot about a guy like me because I'm not the new kid on the block. Uh, Easy Street Billiards is my main sponsor in Monterey, California. That's where I broke the record. I absolutely could not have done that without them. And they've made my last three years playing pool for a living a lot easier. And I just love them to death and, and thank them from the bottom of my heart. Now, a couple smaller sponsors that have been uh, uh, very supportive is Calm Chalk and Chris Renfro with the Techno Dud Tips. I love those tips and I think they're great. And finally, over the years, there's hundreds of people that I could think that have let me stay at their house or taken lessons from me or taken me to dinner. And they might not think that was a big gesture, but when you add up all those gestures over 20 years, I could not have done it without them. So a lot of people have helped my career um, and, and kept me afloat financially you know, by giving me lesson work or sponsoring me an event or staying at their house to save money. And I, and I haven't forgot them. So thank you everybody out there that's ever done that for me. I really appreciate it. So John, just knowing you and kind of knowing, you know, how expressive you are and, and articulate, I knew this would be a fun, yeah. enjoyable podcast. And so I'm so grateful that you were able to make it on. And I wanted to see if you had any final thoughts for, you know, maybe some of your fans or the people that are out there and we can kind of leave it on that. Well, you know, uh, I'm playing, I'm playing a lot. I'm playing every day. Um, so I feel like I'm still, you know, a good player and, a, and, you know, good things can happen. So don't give up on me there. And, uh, I'm, I'm taking off to Illinois on the six and I'm going to be doing a showing in Barry, Illinois for the six two six. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun for people when they see it and how I present it. I'm not trying to, you know, be arrogant, but it's really different. And I think people are going to be kind of blown away at how much fun it is. A week later on the 15th, 16th, and 17th in Sullivan, Illinois, at the Durban Arena, I'll be doing showing again of the 626 for a smaller crowd. And then Nick Varner, Mark Wilson, and I, two of my pool idols and, and friends, uh, we'll be doing a two-day pool school. So that's exciting, and that, that's going to be a lot of fun for the students, and I think it's sold out. So that's happening. Then I think I'm going up to Chicago to show the 626 again. So I'm really going to start showing the 626 uh, to groups of, you know, 20, 30, 40 people. Excuse me. And I'm excited about it. It's something I'm very proud of. And, you know, a guy like you would appreciate it because, you know, you're looking for ways to build excitement. And I've done five of these showings. And, you know, I mean, I've had people literally – in tears during this thing, wow. standing ovations, smiling, applauding, just cheering it, it. And it's not because it's not because of the pool they're seeing. It's the story they're hearing and everything that we went through as a team to break this record. And uh, it's, it's um, something that I think everybody can really relate to. So I'm really excited to get out and start showing it. Awesome. Are you, do you, have you ever laid commentary on that yet? Yeah. Well, Okay, so the run is, is a four-hour and three-minute run. Okay. And Jerry McWhorter and I have done a voiceover on it. Nice. But when we do these live showings, we show the, the run. The run never stops. And the voiceover is going. But there's parts in the voiceover where we actually mute the voiceover and we get up there in front of everybody with microphones and we almost do like this, field questions, tell stories. And, it, and it's, you know, I really get a chance to explain things in a way that people really can relate to what, what they're seeing. I love that. That's super cool. Oh, I'd love to have you at one of the showings. Oh yeah. yeah. It's, it's innovative. It's super cool. It, it kind of reminds me of like a professor presenting this groundbreaking research. Right. And it's, yeah. he's on the podium and it's up behind him and here's what I did. And you know, yes. he breaks it down for you. I really love that. That's yeah. Awesome. I think you, there's some real like heartwarming stories in there of people that made that run happen who dropped what they were doing and financially dove in or 
Doug Desmond, 72 years old, racking. You know how many racks we estimated he racked for me in four months? No. 40,000. He's 72 years old, and he did it for no money. So wow. there's some stories that I get to tell during the showing. You had uh, a, now you, you, you had live in Gilbert. Yeah, oh, yeah. You had to trust him pretty good because, like, what if he, like, yeah. crap racks you one time on a breakout? Yeah. And you get well, we were using the Sardo rack, which oh, was yeah. good, but it was also – and man, I couldn't fudge the rack because a lot of times in straight pull, you can kind of pull that rack to fit the break ball. That Sardo rack can only go in one spot. So I was racking them like very technically correct, not fudging it around. Um, yeah, you you being in Phoenix, maybe we can do a showing in Phoenix sometime and, you know, uh, put together a really neat event. And, and, and I think you'll understand when you see it. Yeah, I... I've been thrilled and flattered to be on here with you. You're a class act and a hell of a good player. Um, call me anytime, pal. And thank you to all the fans listening.